Katie, how's it going? Hey, Jesse, I just got some really good news a couple days ago. You always seem to have news whenever we record a podcast. What's going on? Isn't it weird how that works out? Okay, so do you remember, I've talked a few times about this guy named Stuart Regis, who's a professor of computer science at the University of Washington. And he, uh, there's been this like campaign to basically get him fired, um, coordinated by students and some faculty members, because he, he has this very problematic belief that the reason that there aren't more women in computer science is not because of oppression and prejudice, but it's because of uh, different sort of cultural and possibly biological factors differentiating men and women. You know who I'm talking about? This was the guy who physically assaulted a bunch of his students' feelings, right? Exactly. He did. He physically assaulted their feelings by saying that women in, in tech are not oppressed. Okay, so I like two years ago, I filed a public records request to get the emails about Stuart between his colleagues, which is one of the great things about reporting on public institutions is that if somebody is, you know, if somebody, if a department had a shit talking a, a colleague, we can find this stuff out. So it's been two years since I filed this public records request. And I finally got an update from the University of Washington. And they told me that they had to, so they had to unfortunately extend uh, the response date to my public records request, but at least I have a new one. And that date is August 9th, 2046. <laughs> no, really? I'm not kidding. Yes, I filed like seven public records requests, and the, the one that is, I believe, closest to now um, ends in 2028. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> but the good news. It is incredible. But the good news is that a lawyer reached out to me who works on these issues. And so he's going to pro bono, he's going to help me put some pressure on the university. But yes, 2046, Stuart will certainly be retired by then, if not actually dead. I might be retired and dead by that point. I was going to say, like, you should tell them I, I live a podcaster's lifestyle. I will definitely be dead by then. I know. Seriously, I'm going to have died of fucking podcast shoulder by then. Um, yes, August 9th, 2046. I like how precise they were. Like, they didn't tell me if it was going to be like morning or afternoon, but August 9th, 2046. Lots to look forward to. August 9th, 2046. Uh, we're going to mark it now that we'll release a patrons-only episode. <laughs> yes, hopefully Stuart will still be available for comments. Katie, what is the name of this podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And boy, you know, boy, Katie, boy, do we have a podcast today. We, we do have a podcast. Whatever else you say about us, today we are recording a podcast. You can't take that away from us. It is a podcast. I guess we're going to start with some like cleaning up a few things. And I have a quick rant about a uh, New York Times article. And then later on, we're going to give the main chunk of this podcast over to an interview I did with John Chait. You were supposed to be on it. And then you had you had unexpected construction issues. You you conjured this story to me that seemed pretty pretty shaky, to be honest. It does seem a little fake, but yes, I have water in my basement, and uh, so there was construction going on in my house all week. Lots of jackhammering. It was um, a, a, little bit, a little bit annoying, I will say that. However, the guy that I hired to do the construction is a listener of our podcast, and he did a very really? good job. Yep. Uh, he Because I told him about it, he didn't like I was I was he wasn't like, oh my god, you're Katie Herzog. He found out about it when I told him what I do for a living and he has listened to it. Uh, <laughs> He's a listener. I, I met a listener, meaning I met them, asked them to listen to the podcast, and then they listened. They're a listener. 
Yeah, he's a listener now. Um, anyway, he did a great job, and the construction is over, and hopefully I will no longer have a flooding in my basement. Okay, so yeah, we, we were supposed to do this interview with John Chait. You had all your fans come over to redo your basement for free or something. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, free. Definitely free. Chait is a uh, he's a writer at New York Magazine, longtime writer for everyone. I, I knew him when he's at the New Republic. I've been a big fan of his forever. I was excited to talk to him. We talked mostly about just sort of what's going on in journalism right now, so we'll have that for you soon. Uh Okay, Katie, you – I did not want to talk about this Glad thing. You said we should. People would expect some kind of comment on it. You tell the people what happened. I'm sick of this shit. Jesse, what happened is that you got on a list. I'm so proud of you. You got on a list. Um, so Glad, the ironically named or formerly named uh, Gay and Lesbians Against Defamation um, decided to do a little defamation this week. Didn't you miss one of the – well, you missed one of the A's. You said gays and lesbian – Alliance against defamation. You missed alliance. I think now it's one of those situations where it used to be an, an issue. It doesn't stand for anything right, now because right. that was trans, trans exclusive. Right. To, to gay and lesbian. So it's a group that what they do is like um, – it's sort of like a media matters kind of group. Like they put pressure on organizations to be less phobic of like gay people or trans people or whatever. They also um, decided this week to put you on a list, a list of bad people. Um, it's what they're calling their accountability project. And this is apparently something that they have done several times. They had like a Trump accountability project. They're doing a Biden accountability project. Um, but what it is is basically a list of people who have committed actual physical hate crimes against trans people. And you're one of them. They found out about the stalking. Also. <laughs> Yes. Well, and physical hate crimes against people's feelings or opinions. Exactly. I, I like that you mentioned Media Matters because it's like glad is like if Media Matters somehow had less integrity. <laughs> difficult to do. Difficult to do. Uh, yeah, this was this happened earlier this week. I sort of lost a day to it. I was I was really infuriated. They basically released. Wait, how did you find out about this? John Stokes, friend of the pod, John Stokes, I think tweeted at me. Uh Long list, long list of figures, including Donald Trump, Mike Pence, a bunch of others. Some, some Rick Santorum. Yeah, some were genuinely anti-LGBT figures. Some were uh, people who one could argue that, but it would be a stretch. And then there was me. I, I don't, don't think I belong on this. This is a different level from a lot of the other bullshit I've complained about, and I'm sick of complaining about because I don't really like being at the center of this stuff, but. They basically took uh, – there were three items on my entry. Of the three items, two of them were basically false or misleading claims about my work that I had, to my view, debunked in 2018, just like really ridiculous stuff. Uh, the third was I'm on the list because I suggested in some cases teenagers' genders identity could be influenced by social factors. Uh, the quote they used from that, I immediately followed up by a – clinician who's worked with trans kids for years saying she thinks it happened, a trans boy himself saying it thinks it happens, and a trans girl, yeah, former trans girl, like, right. it happens, so. If you talk to clinicians, they say it happens. If you talk to actual trans people, if you talk to detransitioners, it happens, and it happens in every other aspect of human fucking life, so why would gender identity be the one thing that isn't influenced by by peers or, or culture? Yeah, and, and I think the one... I mean, I'll just link to my newsletter, which luckily a lot of people read. I'm glad I have a platform to just fight back about this stuff. But, um, you know, they, I, I had said in an article that uh, trauma can cause or exacerbate gender dysphoria. This is a fact that has been known by uh, clinicians for decades. 
decades. And I, I quoted two excerpts from Diane Aronsaft's books. Diane Aronsaft is, Aronsaft is a um, gender-affirming clinician. She's controversial among people who are skeptical of youth transition. No one on the planet thinks she's a transphobe. She has said in two books, trauma can cause or exacerbate gender dysphoria. We're at a point where you can get put on an anti-LGBT enemies list for stating a scientific fact, albeit a little bit of an anecdotal one, but everyone thinks this happens. It's every, any clinician with a lot of experience has come across this. So, Jesse, who do you think really knows more about this, clinicians or the social media producer at GLAAD? Yeah, I was yeah. going to say the 20-year-old unpaid intern who added me to the list. Right. Uh, I thought this was disgraceful. Of course, immediately... They lock the whole list except Trump and Pence, and they publicly state that the list was published before they finished reviewing that. I don't know if that was because I complained and a bunch of people wrote in on my behalf, which I appreciate. A few of them sent uh, sent me their emails. Uh, I don't know if I was the cause of that. Either way, for a major rights organization to publish a list of anti-LGBT people without vetting it is like, uh, are you – I don't know, man. I wouldn't do that, but – uh, this was just sort of a new low in this stuff for me. And uh, you can read my Substack response to it, which is thorough. And I'm tired of this. And I have a book coming out. And well, by the time you hear this, if you're a public listener, a week that has nothing to do with this stuff. And I wish I could focus more on that. I am oppressed, Katie. You are oppressed. You and J.K. Rowling, who also was on the list. She was, however, uh, taken off the list rather rapidly. And I'm guessing that's because she has some fucking lawyers who sent one email. I want to know that because it. Uh, some people said that, but like not long after she was off, the rest of us. Well, so if you go to my page now, it's just locked. It says you don't have access. Like the URL still exists. I think that's true with her too. So it's it's unclear. I saw her on the list. And then later, I looked several hours later and you were still on the list. Everybody else was still on the list except for her. JK hit me up. I want to know what happened. Uh, I'm sure you're a listener. You should be a patron given your funds, but uh, absolutely, yeah, man, this shit is getting ridiculous. I think people understand what's going on, and uh, I don't like it, but I'm I'm sick of talking about it, and it I feel like I lose many hours to responding to this stuff. And you had a version of this too, Jude Doyle, who who I'd had run-ins with. We discussed uh, wrote in an article in Gen, a real magazine, at least until recently, because Medium is shutting down all its publications. He wrote that your article on detransitioners. Argued against all youth transition, which is a lie. Like a I, lie. I, I have to say people are lying about me and us so often that I think people are going to think I'm crazy or I'm lying. But if you say this person's article said this, you are either lying because you know that's not true or you are lying by pretending to have read something you haven't read. And there's no accountability. People just get away with this shit because no one on like the good guy side is willing to stand up and say – you know, I hate Katie Herzog, but you shouldn't lie about her. And you should be able to say that. You should be able to say, don't lie even about my enemies. The only people defending this are mostly like heterodox or conservative or whatever. And that's fine. But the reason in progressive circles, this shit has gotten so bad is within those circles, there's no accountability. You do, Jude Doyle will not lose any opportunities by lying repeatedly about both of us. Absolutely not. And so I, in in this case, I, uh, I tweeted about it and I immediately um, wrote an editor at the executive editor at Gen, Gen Magazine at Medium. And I said, like, this is false, like, please change this. And so it was taken care of very quickly, which I really appreciate. Um, one more thing about the GLAD thing. For people who are watching this, this will be old news. But um, friend of the pod, Dan Savage, uh, he tweeted about this. And Dan has been 
has been sort of silent on this issue for a while, but he did something that really should not have taken much bravery, but it did. So he defended you and he pointed out, he, he shared uh, a link to your interview from a couple weeks ago on this podcast with Erica Anderson, a, a trans clinician. And he said, basically, Jesse is not transphobic. And if you listen to this interview, you will you will be able to tell that Dan is not transphobic. Um, he also shared a link to John Kay's piece in Quillette that, went, that detailed this whole campaign against you. A few hours later, Dan is trending on Twitter and was trending on Twitter for like 18 fucking hours. Um, <laughs> poor dude. He like does the right thing and he is rewarded for it by by being just disparaged all over fucking Twitter. Um, and I'm I know, but the, the point I was trying to make online is like, I, I think Twitter sort of games that because the the number of tweets, yes, there were, you could search his name and it was rough. A lot of random ass people and some big name people were were bashing him but i think far more people agree with him and they you know you can't you don't get to be a trending topic by silently disagreeing with an attempt to drag someone you know like i right it's the silently part that's the problem yeah you, you saw the the subsequent advocate piece right oh yeah you tweeted about that oh yeah the advocate put out a piece that had a picture of you and a picture of dan it's sort of a cute picture of you but it looks like it's probably 20 years old um and then dan looks handsome as always um and it says like the headline was something like cis men like jesse single and dan savage can't decide what's transphobic and then the part that i loved was that there was like a throwaway line in the piece that said something about like how white cis People like white cis people aren't allowed to decide what's transphobic. And then it also included me, like white cis men, and then also white cis lesbians like Katie Herzog. And I just wonder, like, are black cis gay people and straight people allowed to decide what's transphobic here? Is that is that the point? Like, uh, what does race have to do with this? The photo is amazing because it's like, it's me. I look very young, clean shaven. I think this was when I was, Jesus, this was grad school. This was almost 10 years ago. And then it's Dan in front of like at some film premiere with like his his gleaming white teeth just looking like the model yeah. of health. And then it's me like looking like I'm going to like fucking abduct your daughter and like club her to death under a bridge. <laughs> it's like the contrast is striking her. after I stalk her, right? Um, anyway, that, that article also said that I had not written about any of the tra- anti-trans bills being circulated. Of course I have. It doesn't – but it doesn't matter. They won't correct – I – all right, that's enough. People can wait. Can, wait, wait, yeah. wait, wait. Can I read? Can I read just one line from that piece? Please do. Okay, this piece is by someone named May Rude. Seems appropriate. Um, and she writes, Jesse Single. He's a huckster, flashing a shiny detransition penny at us in one hand, while holding thousands of trans people who aren't able to get life-saving care behind his back. <laughs> Jesse, you are so much powerful than anybody gives you credit for. What does that a huckster? What does that mean? Did you, did you say penny, like P-E-N-N-Y? A shiny detransition penny. Oh, interesting. So, so when you're criticizing the Jewish writer, Ooh. pennies come up. Ooh, that is very problematic. <laughs> I'm gonna get the advocate put on the uh, on the, the ADL, the yeah. Anti Defamation yeah. League, the original OG Anti Defamation League list. Uh, yeah, no, she got. Uh, I don't know the person's pronouns. They got me. I, I'm trying to. As you can tell from all the articles I've written, I, all I want to do is cut people off from their medical care and make sure they're humiliated and embarrassed. You, you got me. It's been a very long con, but you got me. Yeah. It, it's weird that you keep writing these articles in favor of trans people getting health care. I mean, it, it clearly a dog whistle. It's also funny because we're going to talk about this on the Patreon episode, but like I – 
Well, I, didn't, I don't even think I got – I don't know if I got dogpiled by this other group because, like, I have quality filters on. And oh, you shit, did. But, like, the Graham, the Graham Linehan people subsequently turned on me. So they're mad at me. And I don't – this is all so stupid. And I just want to podcast and write. And Twitter is dumb. And it's just exhausting. And uh, Right. You got yeah. it from uh, both sides this week. It was pretty amazing after like days. I got double teamed you, and I am tired and sore. You did get double teamed for uh, like after weeks of you being just like totally fucking dogpiled and smeared by um, by the, by the trans people and their allies. You also got dogpiled and smeared by gender critical feminists and their allies. Um, so it was funny for me. I'm sure it was annoying for you, but I enjoyed it. It's fine. This whole period, I, w- I mean, I was mad online, but I was also like doing book podcast interviews and doing other stuff, eating a lot of pizza as always. So, as always. Uh, there's other. Twitter is not the world. Uh, all right. And though, do you have anything else to say about Glad or this stuff? I'm hoping we can we can lay off this subject for a while, but hopefully nothing else will happen. Yeah, we do not want this podcast to be just like about your drama or our drama. And I really I hope that in the next few weeks, like this will calm down and that we will be able just to like move back into like dumb internet bullshit, which is what this podcast is. Um, but things happen really crazy. I mean, also what also what this right, is. To right. Be fair. Yeah. Um, but things have been really crazy the last couple of weeks, and like. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, like a twelve-year-old will say the n-word, and everybody will shift shift focus. Uh, I will pay. I will pay it at this point. I will pay a white twelve-year-old <laughs> to say a series of racial slurs just to distract Twitter. Like, look over there. You could just, you know, you just have to sing a couple songs. We'll just give you some some Biggie Small songs you've never heard of before. It's fine. <laughs> Excuse me, little boy. Have you heard of Busta Rhymes? <laughs> this song, "Give Me Some Mo," is very good. Um, yeah, and uh, oh, the one thing to add is glad, glad insists no names are being removed, and after this review, they're putting it back up. So good luck to Glad with what I'm sure will be a very strict, rigorous, research-driven vetting process, presumably led by like a panel of top gender clinicians. Because who else would you give such a grave responsibility to? I'm sure that's exactly what's going to happen. Maybe they can get Erica Anderson to help decide who's a transphobe. <laughs> I'm guessing they will not yeah, call her. Uh, okay. The one other thing I want to mention before the uh, Shade interview is, Katie, there was a story on the front page of the New York Times with the following headline on Google Podcasts, A Buffet of Hate. It's by a guy named Reggie Ugwu, front page of the New York goddamn Times, 1,400 words, basically arguing that Google's podcast search function uh, doesn't exclude hate-filled podcasts, like white nationalist stuff. They also mentioned Alex Jones. And it just struck me as a good example of where this kind of coverage is headed because 1,400 words, we do not hear a peep from anyone who isn't Google, who's, you know, defends their position in sort of a milk toast way. We don't hear from anyone who's an academic, an advocate, free speech exemplar, saying why maybe we don't want a company like Google to have more control over podcasts, even in the context of hate, because obviously you know, hate speech today, there tends to be a slippery slope and, and more and more stuff gets banned. We've seen that on other platforms. Um, and I don't know, man, this just pissed me off because it's like these guys aren't even trying to pretend they're, I don't think journalists can even be neutral because we all have opinions and biases, but there, there is this old model where like you try to help illuminate and explain the world. You don't just act like an advocate. So to have a front page article, um, Posed as a news article where, where at one point uh, the author talks about the old uh, early golden age of podcasting where people like Mark Maron made their bones and it was all open and vibrant. But then this is from a news article, not an opinion column. 
But not all of those voices, part of a chorus of more than one million podcasts in existence today, were virtuous. You know what? I don't want, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want, even in obvious senses, a news reporter at the New York Times to make it their business to decide for me or for anyone what is virtuous. And obviously I agree that like a neo-Nazi podcast is not virtuous, but there are trade-offs to this form of censorship. And and it is censorship. I know the government's not involved, but if a podcast exists and you cannot even get to it by searching for its direct name, you are cutting people off from information. And that inherently brings trade-offs. And I just would like the Times and other outlets to take this a little bit more seriously. It's weird to me that they couldn't find one expert, just a token quote, here's the potential downside of doing this. And yeah, I'm, I, I'm not happy with Outlet's coverage of this. It's been weird. I didn't even know that Google Podcasts was a thing. So I would like to thank the New York Times for telling me about that. But yeah, this is just like, this is this is the trend. We have journalists trying to stifle speech and trying to cut people off from sources of information. And that's troubling. And it's something we should all be watching and we should all be concerned about. Yeah. And I've brought this up before, but like, you know, you just, we don't know enough about what happens when you censor stuff. I mean, one possibility is people move to, uh, underground telegram rooms or whatever, where, where the authorities couldn't keep an eye on what's going on. Like, you know, I, I don't think if you make a podcast unlistenable or unfindable on Google, there, there's a chance you could be doing more harm than good. Maybe I'm wrong. But to, to evaluate that possibility, you need to at least present both sides of the argument. And I think the Times really failed here. And um, I think the reporter and his editor should be immediately fired and never employed by any journalism outlet again. <laughs> it's only fair. Send them to the camps. Cancel culture strikes again. Uh, no, I just want the Times to do better. Okay, Katie, did you have anything else to say or should we get to cheat? Yeah, uh, let's get to the interview. Okay, one thing I just wanted to note before we do is if you go to the show notes, you'll see I included a couple of his articles about the Russia-Trump connection. We ended up cutting it just for space and flow. Chait is one of the best uh, people arguing for the idea that there is something there. He's not a conspiracy theorist. He's very measured, very evidence-based. So this did not make our interview. But if you want to see the best side of that argument, because I'd imagine we have a lot of skeptics of, I don't have strong opinions on it. I don't have a lot of knowledge of it. Chait is a good person to read if you want to understand the argument that we should care about this. Uh, but without further ado, here is our interview. Jonathan Chait, how is it going? Terrific. I'm really excited to be on your show for the first and possibly last time ever. <laughs> first, a lot of our guest careers end via their blocked and reported appearances. I'm looking forward to joining the long list. Before we get into the, uh, the nitty gritty of, of everything, there was some sad news today, was there not? There was Jessica Walter, the great, brilliant comic actress um, who's done a lot of things, but most familiar to me from my favorite television show ever, Arrested Development. Yes. As soon as I found out she died and realized it was the same day I was interviewing you, I realized we would have to talk about this for at least a minute because uh, I hope you will not be offended if I say that I do not generally follow you for your pop culture references. Very few people do. There are like three of the references. It's an incredibly <laughs> limited list. Simpsons, right? You get some Simpsons stuff in there. I get I get a lot of Simpsons in there. I get a lot of Big Lebowski in there. Um, it's Arrested Development and I can quote The Godfather and that's it. That's pretty much my entire, not just pop cultural, but cultural knowledge of any kind. And you are really playing against type as sort of like a white Jewish intellectual who likes The Big Lebowski and The Simpsons. 
<laughs> I like the surprise. All right. So I figured uh, just before we get going, we would each mention and edit in our favorite Lucille Bluth moment. Uh, we'll do yours first. Welcome to Klimpies, anywhere you like. This does not bode well. I'll have the Ike and Tina tuna. Plater platter. I don't understand the question and I won't respond to it. I love that one because it is obviously uh, very relevant to journalism where we do not like responding to questions or we encounter a lot of people who do not like responding to questions. And I also chose that, Jesse, because that's often how I respond to your content, which is frequently about weird things on the internet that I don't even understand. So that's just kind of how I, I think about it. Like, I don't really know what, what Jesse's trying to say here, and I'm just not going to respond to it. I try to make my Twitter feed as unrelatable as possible, and I'm glad that uh, <laughs> I'm doing a good job of this. All right, here's my favorite. You know, Mother Lucille, there's a psychological concept known as denial that I believe you're evincing. It's when a thought is so hateful that the mind literally rejects it. You are a worse psychiatrist than you are a son-in-law, and you will never get work as an actor because you have no talent. Well, if she's not going to say anything, I certainly can't help her. I, I, that one is obviously less subtle, but I feel like that really reveals something about the, uh, the cold viciousness at the core of Lucille Blue's heart. Yep. Okay, so I, I wanted to talk to you about a few things. Uh, I'm very excited to have you on. I have read you forever. Uh, when I was 22, I was reading you in the New Republic. Um, if you don't mind, I mean, I was hoping to revisit this this cover story you have for New York Magazine called Not a Very PC Thing to Say, meaning politically correct, How the Language Police Are Perverting Liberalism. So um, I'm going to do that annoying thing where you're more familiar with it than anyone. Do you want to just quickly recite its main argument? Yeah, this is a piece I wrote in 2015 when I think this moment was, was beginning. Um, and I was trying to analyze how – the discourse about identity was was really changing on the left, exploding out of academia and into other progressive spaces and being conducted along some what I would call illiberal lines. Um, we can sort of get into what I mean by that, but um, – Actually, let's define right now what you mean by liberal versus illiberal. Li liberal meaning um, approach a question by granting – some basic presumption of political legitimacy to everyone involved in the debate, that you're going to resolve the debate through an appeal to reason and facts, at least in part. It doesn't mean that you have to ignore whether one person is this identity or, or, or another identity, um, because that can be an important question. Um, but you can't merely resolve the debate by saying this idea is associated with this group and that idea is associated with another group and therefore one idea is correct. You have to right. um, break down the ideas and defend them on their own terms. You have to ab abstract them away from the identities of the people making the argument. And I would say for this system to work, there actually has to be a presumption that we're going to, in many cases, except when the identity of someone is directly relevant, we're going to almost imagine those ideas as or arguments as ghosts floating in some sort of shared discursive space where it doesn't really matter who said them, right? That's right. And and look, and and the the liberal tradition goes back a long ways. And I think there's a fair critique of it, especially the version of it that you hear from people on the right, that 
that wants to completely ignore the role of identity. And and they and they could say, look, you know, you could some fussy old um room in, in Harvard Law School in the nineteen fifties where everyone was a white male. Um it matters that everyone in that room was a white male and you can't just analyze their ideas without taking any account of that, right? So I, I think the left has a good critique to an extent of saying representation matters. Um, you you have to consider whether people are are really looking outside their group or or smuggling their own perspective or their own self interest into the discussion. So I'm willing to that right that, that but that said, it's, the, the critique is usually uh, the fact that the room was all white men is a problem for this reason. It's not like there's in in the liberal version of it that I find compelling. It's not like if you had a room of white conservatives and then you added Glenn Lowry to it, you you still don't have any diversity of ideas or bring in the perspective you'd want. That's not a knock on Glenn Lowry, but it's like it's not like there's some magical essence of having a non-white person in the room, right? The the assumption is that some perspective or sense of empathy or understanding of what marginalized people go through has been missing historically. That's right. Well, so what I was trying to do in this piece – um, is try to give a lot of examples of the way this mood was happening, events that were happening on campus, events that were happening on social media, and the way these conversations were taking place. And then I tried to situate it within um, an ideological debate between liberalism and the left. Um, I think the first part of this argument has made more headway than the second. I, I think it's it's correct. I, I I think it's a very good piece I wrote. But in terms of persuading other people, I think um, <laughs> people went greeted this at the time. Well, a lot of people were just kind of denying that anything like this was happening. They're saying, you know, this is you're just you're just picking out a few isolated incidents, or people have been saying this forever, and nothing's really changed. And I think every everyone now realizes that something has changed. Um, my my framework of seeing it of of a kind of left. Um, assault on liberal norms, I think some people see it that way, but I'm not sure everybody does, although I I, I still think that's the right way to see it. And, and when you talk about sort of the thing you're critiquing is basically these illiberal norms uh, just just spreading. And as you say in the piece, there was a previous wave of, of what you could call political correctness in the 90s. So y- your claim is not really that it's new, but but your claim is that in certain ways, um, I mean, I guess this gets to the question of what's happened between 2015 and 2021, because my trajectory was, I found your piece pretty compelling, but in the same way, I sort of discounted uh, your, your near namesake, Jonathan Haidt. Mm-hmm. It's funny that there's Jonathan Haidt and Jonathan right. Chait making similar arguments. <laughs> I did fall for the trap of, it's just college students, who cares? Yeah. Which isn't to say that it isn't unpleasant. Like you, you, your story starts with this um, Arab kid at the University of Michigan, which is both of our alma maters, who went through a really shitty experience because he he did a you know glib column about political correctness. Um, for me, what's changed is I really think these ideas have spread into journalism mm-hmm. and other professional settings, and I I take it we don't have much disagreement about that. No, we don't. I mean, I think it was already beginning to spread into some of those settings, but certainly much more so now than 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 at the time. Right, and and I, I blinked as I was setting this up, but you mentioned the article uh, 
incredible quotes from uh, from binders full of women, a legendarily uh, toxic. It was supposed to be a group for women writers and and political types to support one another, and it just sort of melted down into a mess of recrimination. And then, um, uh, from what I'm hearing, especially since last spring, more and more institutions are melting down in similar ways like and and the problem is people can always say it's just anecdotal show me more proof show me more proof but the vast majority of the communications i get about this which are mostly from journalists and academics are i'm not going to say anything about this publicly i don't want to lose my job i don't want to lose my clout in the organization do you do you get messages like that yep. still yeah i've made a joke that i should um uh you do it like a Jeffrey Epstein style blackmail list where I just keep all these private communications <laughs> and then <laughs> and then charge people to keep it private. I'm not yeah, going to do um, that. I'm not really going to do that. It's just, just to be clear. Just to be clear. Keep keep sending me the And have you seen the trajectory steadily increase since twenty fifteen when you wrote the cover story? Yes. Yeah. And I think I think you had an important moment last summer um in the wake of the George Floyd protests. Um and, and, and there was some reporting on it at the time that um, you had some people basically saying, OK, we need to – being profoundly affected by what they saw, which I think they should have been. We we all were. A lot of people were really moved appropriately so by the horrors of what they saw last summer you know, with the, the murder of George Floyd. So they decided to bring change into their – lives, their institutions around them. But the problem was that the people most apt to do that tended to be in the most liberal institutions. So you didn't have a lot of people in police departments just bringing liberal racial consciousness and raising, which would have been a really positive change. You had them bringing it into a lot of um, media, corporate, I would say liberal corporate institutions. Um the places where liberals had the most representation were the ones that were most affected. So they, instead of going from right to the center, they were going from the left to the far left. Yeah. If the thing is, what I always get caught up on is like, I, I know you've written a little bit about Robin D'Angelo. I, uh -huh. I don't even know if like far left is, is the thing to call that because like whatever her thing is, is clearly compatible with like the biggest corporations in the world who bring her in to speak. And it's very much about sort of individual consciousness raising. Um, I guess what fascinates me is like is this idea that the reason for ongoing racial inequality is that, as you're saying, uh, the English department at whatever state university or, you know, the New York Times that that the the dominating liberal sentiments there aren't liberal enough, and that that can really account for racial injustice. I just don't find that account that credible. Yeah, I mean, I, I would call people like D'Angelo on the, on the far left. In 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 the New, the New York Times magazine did a great interview with her last year, and she basically explained that her her ideology sort of requires a dismantling of capitalism, and and in fact that was one of the problems with it that there's really nowhere for her program to go without dismantling capitalism. But then there's so why are corporations hiring her? Well, because she isn't really. Um, it, wielding power in any in any serious way that would threaten those corporations, it's just it's just a way of alleviating guilt and, and browbeating the employees. Uh the the browbeating employees thing is like is interesting to me because 
there there's something a little bit abusive. I don't mean abusive in the sense of like a 12-year-old British coal miner back in the day, but but these programs that really require you to sit in a room and be told why you're bad and confess your sins, uh, that just seems so problematic from a basic workplace and HR uh, standpoint, no? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I feel like the whole ap- ap- approach in every step of the way is, is really misguided. And I think... One of the ways this has taken hold, especially in the media, is actually even even a little bit worse. I think a lot of people decided they were going to model their their action after Me Too. They said we need basically a race version of Me Too. Yeah, Me Too. I think was was a pretty effective and and not abusive um, process. You know, I'm not saying that every single way it was carried out was was perfect, but I think on the whole, you had people who took seriously the presumption of evidence of innocence, took seriously the need to have real evidence, and were targeting actual behaviors, oftentimes criminal behavior, yeah, um, to to target men who had who had committed sexual harassment or discrimination. They didn't really have a lot of behaviors to target. With regard to race, all they really had was ideas to target. So that was the first problem. And then I think the the way that they identified these ideas um, sort of drew on the problems that I had written about five years ago and that you've been describing where um, there's essentially no way to refute an accusation. Any charge of, of racism is presumptively correct. And there's, there's, you just have a, a kind of apology script that you can follow when charged. There's, there's nothing in the script that allows for someone to show that the, a charge is, is a misunderstanding or, um, even, um, a politically motivated desire to discredit someone who you just may have some other ideological or personal disagreement with. That was what was interesting about the Donald McNeil thing is the way a lot of time staffers, some of them, to be clear, not on the editorial side, when they wrote that letter, they were very clear that this wasn't just about him uh, potentially having mentioned the Edward, but, you know, he didn't sufficiently believe in white supremacy in America and therefore he should be investigated by his employer. And uh, or similarly, Matt Iglesias signs the Harper's letter and and his colleague says that that makes her feel unsafe in the workplace. This is a letter signed by, among several trans people, Noam Chomsky and Salman Rushdie. Uh, this idea, this endlessly expanding, uh, expanding idea of harm is something you mentioned in, in your 2015 article. Uh, it's it's really bad and toxic. Like it just, uh, I feel like it's just a, a recipe for witch hunts and institutional dysfunction. Right. I mean, I, you know, it's it's a recipe for abuse, and that's why it just produces abuse over and and over again. Um, the one, so I, I think maybe it would be more interesting if we can try to find some area of disagreement rather than agreement because we agree so much on. I, I on disagree. This now. I disagree with that. <laughs> um, so I remember, as you alluded to, when I first wrote this, you were kind of so. Number one, I think you were a little bit dismissive initially, as 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 a lot of people were. Um, and but but then I think maybe tell me if I'm misunderstanding the way your thought process um, developed o- over the years. Um, you 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 first saw said okay, it's it's just a few isolated incidents, and then I think you were I, I, defining it as kind of. Um, 
social pathologies related to um, technology, um, the spaces people were in, um, economics, whereas I was still kind of fixated on this ideological frame for understanding what was happening, this sort of liberal versus left frame. Is that is that still a disagreement between us? Huh. It's interesting. I think it's both. I think Twitter, exacer- for example, exacerbates a lot of these like liberal tendencies, rushes to judgment, not adhering to the principle of charity. But I think one area in which I have crawled in your direction is um, – uh, I call I call it left wing identitarianism, whatever this thing is. Yeah. Um, I think, right. and I was going to ask you whether you think there's there's a downside to calling it political correctness, because there's so much dispute over what that term means. Um, I think this is not a. Tr- I think liberalism is a truly fleshed out belief system, and you can say how would a liberal respond to X Y Z? There'll be some disagreement, sometimes a lot of disagreement, but we know what liberal is. Left wing identitarianism to me is more like this religious belief that groups have essences and are supposed to act in a certain way. There was, uh, I think the piece, mm-hmm. longest piece I've written about left-wing identitarianism is a a writer at Slate writes a piece about Pete Buttigieg. I will still never be able to pronounce his name. Buttigieg. 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 Microaggression. Yeah. Um, and, and her genuine unironic gripe is that despite being gay, he does not see himself as that oppressed. And – To me, that's part of the deal here is like different groups are supposed to act in different ways and frame their experiences in different ways. And, you know, the idea that we're going to pick a gay American at random and say you are supposed to feel oppressed is is strange to me. Um, I think that idea has spread far and wide and you will see otherwise smart people clearly just deferring to whoever has the right identity characteristics except – it's listen to black people until the black person in question is Coleman Hughes or John McWhorter, right? Right. Right. So I think one of the differences between liberal and left is um, the kind of um, basic mode of of the, the political unit. The political unit of liberalism is the individual. The individual has rights. All, all, and, and your political rights belong to you as an individual. The political unit within of, of left-wing thought is the group. Your political rights are, are, are dependent on what group you represent. So you can't really answer um, a question about a political conflict without knowing what groups are engaged in the conflict. And then what you need to do is say, does this conflict, which side is the oppressor and which side is the oppressed? And then you, then you have your answer. Now you have class-based versions and you have race-based versions and you have gender-based versions, but, but that's the, the common thread of different kinds of left-wing um, alternatives to liberalism. Well, and what's interesting about that is like, I, I grew up very much in the liberal tradition and, and the, you know, that endlessly cited examples of the Nazis marching in Skokie until I was probably 25, maybe older. That was so obviously true to me. And I know you can't say a value judgment is true. It's not like a, the atomic right. weight of something, but it was so obviously true to me that the Nazis really do have a right to march and that that right is yep. important to defend. And and no one in my intellectual universe, I, I think, really questioned that because I didn't hang out with radical left-wingers. It seems right. like now anyone who says that um, in within mainstream journalism, we're it seems overnight like we're in the minority. That's right. I think one of the ways in which my college experience was a little more formative for me on this issue than yours was, I graduated from Michigan earlier. 
So you had this PC wave that started in the late 80s, was already on the decline in the early 90s, and was was almost completely done by the time I graduated in 1994. But I still was able to experience a pretty, you know, intense version of it. You had two speech codes that were enacted by the university administration in response to demands by left-wing demonstrators that were both struck down by the Supreme Court of the United States when I was there. You had all kinds of left-wing activity that was oriented in one way or another around a program whose goal was to stop people who disagreed with them from expressing themselves. That was, in one way or another, that was what the left wanted when I was in Michigan. Get people who disagree with us to shut up. Um, and then it stopped. It, it went away. You had this wave of national criticism. And I think a lot of people on the left really were em- embarrassed out of it. Um, but I think it also helped me under- to understand it in ideological terms, maybe just because I took a lot of political theory courses. I just that's the tool I use to analyze things is political theory. Um, it's not the only way to analyze anything, but it's my sort of go to way. Um, and we had someone named Catherine McKinnon, who was a really influential figure on campus. Um, McKinnon was someone I studied in political theory courses because she had this pronounced critique of liberalism from the left. Right. That was the, it was the gender based version of this critique, right? It was the, so if you read Marx, Marx criticizing liberal democracy, he'll say, you're talking about bourgeois liberalism you're talking about the rights for the bourgeoisie um and you're and and when you talk about liberal democracy you're just protecting the rights of of the middle class and the bourgeoisie against the proletariat right mckinnon's critique was when you talk about liberalism you're talking about the rights of of men to oppress women and and, and, and McKinnon, this is a common move where whenever someone says like uh, we should respect the universal right to free speech. The left or far left response is often, well, like, well, who actually benefits from that? It's the people with power. They're going to use it to oppress the people they want to oppress. That's right. They they turn it from a debate about abstract rights to a debate about groups that because that's that's their ideology. That's how they see the world. And, you know, you had episodes like Catherine and I wrote about this in the piece you mentioned. Catherine McKinnon had this little um, cult of students who who kind of. Uh, hung on her every word, and a lot of them even like dressed in and did their hairstyle like her, um, and kind of did her bidding. And and there was this feminist author, no, sorry, a feminist artist who had a an art display on campus that was um, illustrating the lives of sex workers. Um, and for in her mind, this was a very feminist, progressive art display. McKinnon decided it was pornography, and her followers kind of come in and and they just trash the place and shut it down. Say this is pornography; it's oppressing us. Um, it's got to go. So you so I could see how this debate was was both from everything from the abstract, from reading her books to seeing how people were actually following her guidance on the ground level. So for me, it was, it was a pretty clear line how these ideas actually played themselves out in real life. Yeah. I, I transferred to Michigan. So I was only there in two years and I, uh, for two years graduated in 06. And I vividly remember I would do the 12 hour drive regularly between Boston and Ann Arbor. I cannot imagine doing that now. Um, and I would keep myself awake by listening to Mark Levin and Sean Hannity, not so much Rush Limbaugh actually, and just being enraged at them, but fascinated by them. And they would, uh, present a vision of liberal college life being infested by Marxists, I did not recognize at all because that just wasn't what I was seeing on campus at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it was really gone. By the time I graduated in 94, I thought it was it was it was really on its way out. And 
um, progressive students actually found new ways to channel their political energies. I mean, they were saying that, you know, they were doing really positive things like, hey, there are all these um, sweatshops overseas that are, um, you know, making deals with our campus. Like, why don't we pressure our university to, to, to have some wage and living standards for the workers that we, um, are making business deals with? And, you know, they're actually changing the world in positive ways and not just, and not, and not trying to stop their political opponents anymore. Um, so it, it totally went away and then it, and then it, then it came back. What fascinates me about the present moment is, there's this real like present bias or myopia where well, power is what politics is about. Who has power? Who can coerce who to do what? And you have, in many cases, young people. I don't want to make this an old versus young thing. I'm not willing to lump myself in with olds like you just yet. Um, right. Okay. But <laughs> you have young people clamoring to give their employers more power to restrict their off-hour speech. And you have young people on the left, supposedly, clamoring to give big, unaccountable tech companies a lot of power to, frankly, censor dissenting views. How do they not realize that 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 is really going likely to hurt the left in the long run? Or maybe at this point, the left is just so culturally dominant and dominant in tech, they'll they'll always be the good guys in charge. What's the source of misunderstanding here? Yeah, I mean, you've you've got this sort of that's one critique of it is that these powers can be given and then turned against you. Um, and, and first I, of all, I'm not saying that, that it's right either way. I'm just saying, even if you, you don't believe conservatives have a right to post on Reddit, you have to know that you're, you're probably doing yourself in a disservice by, uh, believing in this stuff. Right. I mean, I, I, I think the real problem is, is what it does within the left itself, because it just makes it hard for people on the left to have intelligent debates within themselves. I, I feel like the secret sauce of liberalism is its openness to critique and its ability to engage in corrections on that basis. So I think the threat of these new norms is that they shut that process down by giving people a weapon to prevent internal critique. Do you buy my theory that things are getting um – significantly weird and constricted in journalism that it might slow down the debunking of like, like to me, police abolition was, was briefly, well, not briefly, but it was a serious fad and you had like very superficial articles written about it. And, and I don't know, man, I, I watched Zach Beauchamp an otherwise talented Vox reporter say he thought police abolition was silly, get piled on and then come back a couple hours later saying he changed his mind and hadn't realized police abolition is a reasonable idea. <laughs> it seems inevitable that this is affecting what stories get written, right? There's no question. There's absolutely no question. Um, there's no question that people are I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm lucky that I have. Um, I'm in a place of privilege that I can say what I think. So I'm not. I'm not forced to be coy about what I believe. I can. I can basically say whatever opinion I want. But not many people have um, th that level of, of of privilege to speak their mind the way I do. And um, I hear from a lot of people who who don't have that ability to say to say what they want and 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 look I mean I know one of the criticisms is well people used to be able to say racist things and now they can't and I think to some extent that's true and to some extent you can find some some positive aspects to this change I think it it is good to inhibit people from 
expressing racist, sexist, and, and bigoted ideas. But you need some reasonable process to determine what the, what those offensive ideas are, or else you're just empowering people to shut down ideas they don't like. Well, you covered the the firing of David Shore, the sort of uh, data wonder child who um, Civis Analytics fired him after he tweeted a study by Omar Wasow, a uh, black political science professor, or uh, yeah, I think political science, basically saying that um, nonviolent protest uh, works better than violent protest. This was called anti-black. He was fired for it. You got these incredible listserv postings from like what I think is an actual pretty influential um, data scientist listserv with like a thousand people on it. Adults, full full grown adults, saying that even asking for evidence of his crime was itself a bad act, right? Right. You had lots of people who were just scared to say anything. And some people said, hey, is this really fair to kick him, to basically exclude him from his professional network after he's been fired? Um, those people themselves became the objects of suspicion. And, you know, what, you must be a racist if, if you think it was, un, it was unfair to, to fire David Shore. Um, of course, that's classic witch hunt logic, right? Only if, you know, if, if, if you object to the fairness of the proceedings, maybe you, you share the guilt of the accused. What's the response to, okay, once in a while there's a David Shore type deal, but the cancel culture warriors, as as they're called, haven't provided that many more concrete examples. And plus, people like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald and to a lesser extent, Jesse Single uh, are doing well on Substack. Clearly, they're not being censored. Why should we care about any of this? Children are dying elsewhere, COVID, etc. Well, well, the last part is the easiest, right? Why should we care about this when there's something worse? Well, there's always more than one problem in the world, and there's never any requirement that you can only care about the single worst problem in the world. You can care about lots of problems to different measures. Um, I spent the Trump years, I spent my entire career um, directing far, far more of my attention towards the dangers of the right because the right has more power. I think the right is a bigger threat to liberal values. Um, but I do think it's important to spend some of my attention on problems on the left. And, and this is a grow, this is a growing one. Um, to go in reverse order, your, your previous objection, I, I think I'll return to the answer that this isn't necessarily what you're doing to quote unquote victims. In fact, I think this whole mentality of saying, well, who are the victims? Well, the victims are doing fine. So there's no victims, therefore no problems is itself a misguided application of reasoning that reduces every problem to oppressors versus oppressed. Um, I think the problem is what you're doing to liberal thinking and liberal, you know, liberal discourse. If you're, if you're shutting out of those spaces, the ability to have reasoned debate in self-criticism, you're going, you're, you're putting the left on a path towards stupidity, unreason. Um, the same, the same path that the right has been on for a long time. Um, where you, you're, 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 you're no longer able to open yourselves to serious critique and, and you, and you, and you fall into these, um, er erroneous fallacies that you can't escape. What do you think of the success of uh, Sam Harris and Joe Rogan could not give less of a shit if the guests they have on are controversial. They will Rogan Rogan has an even more expansive view. He'll have, you know, Alex Jones on, which I have some negative feelings about, but he'll they'll have these like long winding 
hour and a half conversations with people who might not uh, be acceptable to mainstream journalism. And, and both of their podcasts are, I think, staggering success stories. Does that tell us that there's a risk as um, – you know, certain people, Iglesias clearly felt less welcome than he used to at Vox, that these outlets are just missing out on on important stories or or on things that could drive more readership or audience? Yeah, this is a point I've seen you make num- a number of times, and I think it's absolutely correct. This is not an, an economic strategy. They're, they're not running toward the audience. They're running away from the audience in a lot of ways, or at least they're, they're running away from a big, big audience that, that really wants to see some kind of interplay between right and left or, or, or some kind of effort to, to challenge and critique their own, their own side. I'll always remember when they were trying to call Obama an evil Marxist, you had this great line. Well, I said I'll I'll always remember. Now I can't reproduce it. But it was something like, (laughs) (laughs) to Republicans, the difference between freedom and tyranny is the difference between like a top marginal tax rate of uh, what, 30% versus 35%. Does that ring a bell at all? Yeah, I'm sure I've said things like that. Yeah. That always comes to mind in like some of the most fierce culture war debates I've gotten into on the left – it's like I'll use the example. Unfortunately, everyone associates with me, but it's like if you think um, a trans kid should be—I'm not gonna. Don't worry, I'm not making you chime in on this. If you think a trans kid <laughs> should, should be assessed for three months before going on hormones, you're an ally. If you think it should be six months, you literally want to murder all trans kids. There's this like right. very rigid binary thinking that I find completely antithetical to. You know, what I valued as a college columnist at Michigan, not that I was good at, but like puzzling through disagreement, figuring out why I'm right, why they're wrong, all that stuff. I just I feel like the tools I was raised with are are rusting because no one wants to use them anymore. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think um, Wes Lowry's um, way of putting it was that journalist journalism needs to engage in moral clarity and especially about racism. And I think that has value in in some instances, but. But not everything has that kind of moral clarity that you can that you can very clearly bifurcate the issue into two sides. A lot of things have 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 gradations that that you need to be able to appreciate. Yeah, my main critique of that, I, I thought that was such a good. I, I did a newsletter on it recently. It's just like a good attempt at explaining what where these differences come from. And I just think Lowry and some people who agree with that vastly overstate the number of uh, situations where a journalist can like use moral clarity to guide his approach because so often the world is is more complicated than that. I mean, what's the um what's the moral clarity approach to the early days of the Jussie Smollett story where no one knew exactly what was up? I mean, what what does moral right. clarity tell you to do in a situation like that even? I don't even understand. Yeah, and as I think I wrote in this in that piece, I, I can't remember if I wrote it in my first PC piece or in one of the follow-ups. Um, people were driven to erroneous claims by this very culture, right? You had um, that that horrible Rolling Stone story about about the alleged rape that that fell apart, and then you had the um, erroneous account of the of the shooting in Ferguson and you and people were really afraid to challenge it because anyone who was raising questions was being attacked as well you must be a racist or a, or a sexist if you have any any questions about it and and not only did this make people repeat false claims but i think really discredited those movements if you're if you're serious about doing things about 
rape and sexual assault assaulted if you're serious about police racism and abuse and those are those are both and especially the last one very serious problems it discredits your movement when you've when you've loudly said things that the opponents can can prove are not are not true so when it comes to these internal blow-ups in newsrooms and other media organizations it's hard to provide skeptics with that many examples sure is one I get leaked stuff pretty frequently, like going on within these organizations. Where do you see all this headed? Because like it, it seems to be damaging journalism. They're not even, I don't know. I feel like there's a number of outlets where I just know what their take is going to be on everything beforehand. And with the exception of like, you know, some John Chade and Connor Friedersdorf types, there's there's a lot of conformity right now. Do you think this problem is just going to get worse as journalism continues to collapse because of these broader structural issues? Collapse seems like a little bit of an overstatement to me. I think you have some changes in journalism that are good, some changes in journalism that are bad. Um, I think you have a specific set of problems around these identity-focused issues um, where, again, you've got a mix of good and bad, and, and, and we're focused on the bad, which I think outweighs the good. But I think they are bringing in new voices and new perspectives in ways that that's helpfully broadening the debate in in some ways i just don't i don't don't like the way that they're shutting down opposition on the other side i wish it was all broadening and not broadening along with narrowing where is it going to go is a really hard answer to question to sorry it's a very hard question to answer um, it, it really disappeared in the 1990s, but it doesn't mean it's going to disappear again. I think you had a political debate within the left. And I think a lot of people on the left decided that they were embarrassed by these excesses, embarrassed by aligning themselves against free speech values, which, as, as you noted, were really the dominant perspective of, of people who identified as liberals. I, we don't know if that's going to happen again. Uh, just in terms of like how it how it damages progressivism, I I so vividly remember being on an uh, exercise bike at my Planet Fitness in Brooklyn pre pandemic, watching Tucker Carlson uh, rail on the media for their coverage of the Covington kids, and uh, you know I was just thinking like I I can't stand Tucker Carlson for a million reasons, but I can't really disagree with what he's saying. When you that was one of those like moments for me where I was just like. There's something wrong with journalism, and I feel like we're handing some easy wins to the conservatives who have been, you know, running this like evil liberal conspiratorial media thing for decades, and it has usually been false or overstated. But there's some of these stories like Covington where I just I I think it looks really bad, and it 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 hurts our side. Yeah, there's there's no question. I mean, it it hurts our side. It's it's not just handing easy wins to conservatives, but I think it does bad things to to the liberal mind it it it, sh- it shuts us off from from critique and i think it it makes it easier for people to uh, be kind of stampeded to the most extreme version of of any argument on the left which is the intent the intent is to is to really collapse every question into a, into a binary that allows the people who have the most extreme version of of the position to define themselves as being the most authentic. Really, I think that's a version of that is basically what started happening with the political right a long time ago when the when the conservative movement started taking over the Republican Party. 60 years ago, it it was a fringe. The Republican Party was a much more, um, 
ideologically diverse organization, and the conservative movement was just one faction within it. But the conservative movement decided to take over the Republican Party and, and set out to do that in a very deliberate way and, and delegitimized the moderates in the Republican Party and set up its own outlets that would follow the conservative party line. And over time, they managed to drive out the center and make conservative movement thought synonymous with the Republican Party to the point where people don't even know that they didn't once used to be the same. Um, I think you have important differences between the left and the conservative movement. But I think there are also important similarities. You really have a, a an ideological movement that has a project of taking over the Democratic Party and in taking over any institution that is sort of um, associated with progressivism, even if it's not an ideological or political organization like the New York Times is not. The New York Times is not a, a political organization, but they still want to take it over. So, you know, I don't know how, how the story is going to end, but it could end with with all these institutions really being captured the way the conservative movement captured the Republican Party. What's interesting to me is it seems like that movement has been able to capture what were mainstream institutions on the left of center, whereas Trumpism sort of started with with new institutions and newer ones like Breitbart or Gateway Pundit or whatever. Um, and it, it's so interesting to me that journalists are convinced that a certain identitarian or illiberal worldview is the only way to look at the world. But then you look at the broader democratic base and the least woke, least hip and with it candidate one handily and he won on the backs of like nice black church ladies in South Carolina. It just, it seems like there's not actually much of a natural appetite for this ideology. And yet a subset of outlets and, and institutions are completely swimming in it and addicted to it. That's right. And right. And I mean, several things happened, right? So the, the least woke socially left candidate won, and then the democratic party bled um, black and Hispanic voters to the Republican yeah. party. So I think it really illustrates a very practical problem for the Democratic Party of we need to hold on to – I'm saying we from the perspective of the Democratic Party. I'm not including myself in that. I'm not working in Democratic politics. But the Democrats need to hold on to these black and Hispanic voters they're losing, and they're clearly losing them on their right edge. So the, this assumption that, that – Going far to the left is the best way to, to, to maximize the vote total among black and Hispanic voters is pretty clearly false. But one of the things that I think um, this um, movement is attempting to do is make it impossible to actually analyze this political problem realistically. That's what one of the things that driving out people like David Shore is meant to accomplish. Well, I was gonna I was gonna say I wonder if that was part of the reason. Clearly he had some enemies within Civis, and he he's saying he's he's making these exact cases we are just more in a more uh, sophisticated way. In a similar episode, I, I, I also wrote about in the same article that covered David Shore, uh, Lee Fung, who's a, a reporter at The Intercept, posted an interview with um, a Black Lives Matter activist who's very much in tune with the movement's goals in terms of policing. But he also said, look, crime is a problem. Like, I am I come from a high crime community. People are worried about it. We got, we've, we've got a, we've got a, do something about crime too, while we're also focusing on the abuses of of police and, and racism and policing, and and that was seen as um as a as a kind of covert racist 
act by Li Feng just to post this interview. Uh, but I think that represents a pretty important strain of thought among real world black and Latino voters that Democrats have to deal with. So the question is, are they going to be allowed to listen to that? Or are they going to try to shut it down? I found that to be such a ridiculous episode. And then, and then other Intercept staffers were just openly bashing him on Twitter, which is like, you know, where are the adults in the room? That that makes it so hard to be a journalist who ever disagrees about anything if your own colleagues will then bash you and call you racist. Li Fong, the racist. That was terrible. Uh, my Maybe I was a Marxist in another life because I do go back to class on a lot of this stuff. Like when I when I think about the reason this one particular ideology has taken over so many outlets and we've gotten to the point where posting a video of a black guy expressing an opinion held by a lot of black people is seen as offensive. I just, I think... Upper middle class people dominate the culture and they make a lot of the rules and they're the people running these institutions. So when a fad hits the elite colleges they go to, that just trickles down. And so you have a lot of social justice speak that is, if anything, most popular among elite white liberals, which leads to these just a very weird situation. Are you sympathetic to that? Oh, I absolutely agree with it. And it's it's also the case that the way to gain authority in a lot of these institutions is to master um, the dialect and to master these terms, which are, of course, constantly changing. So you, you, you know, you really have to be up on the lingo and you can't use last month's term um, when new ones are constantly entering the discourse. I mean, that's a that's a that's a way of, of allocating power um, that's very favorable to highly educated and wealthy people. Yeah, it's uh, it's very strange times in journalism. I I'm frustrated by the idea – after I signed the Harper's letter, a lot of people interpreted that as me saying I'm afraid that I'll get canceled or I'll lose my job when the reason I signed it is, is similar to what you were saying. Like I feel like we both feel pretty secure. We're lucky to have good positions. But someone who was 10 or 20 years younger than us, it would be very hard to come up in journalism right now without just towing the party line on everything. Yeah, that's – so when I wrote the – PC article that we started talking about, the response, almost the uniform response, the response by almost everyone, um, including, uh, interestingly, Glenn Greenwald, was Chait is just a white man who thinks he's oppressed and he's and he's worried about his own uh, privileges being, being taken away <laughs> and given to minorities. Um, and I noted that there was not a word of that anywhere in the piece. I said, like, if if I'd said anything like this, they would all be quoting it. No one's quoting it. One of the pieces sort of invented this dialogue and attributed it to me. They didn't, like, say it was me, but they just, like, had to, like, rewrite my words and say, like, this is what Jade is really saying and, 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 and it's all about me. But there was nothing about me in that piece because that's not how I feel. I'm, I'm like – like you, I'm I'm enormously privileged and, and lucky, but I'm I'm worried about what this is doing to 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 the left. John, don't you know that obsession with the written word and and what words are and are in there is a manifestation of white supremacy <laughs> and perfectionism as well. That that thing, I'll let you go in a minute because uh, I know you got stuff to do. But that thing of just inventing words and putting them in your enemy's writing and then pretending they said that. Oh, <sighs> I don't understand how writers don't have that habit beaten out of them by the time they're 25. It's just such an easy thing to not do. It's so easy to just respond to what your adversary actually said. And um, I mean, you're, you somehow are able to stay out of the fray on Twitter in a way I 
can't because I'm, I mean, I'm, I have a broken soul. That's a separate issue. But like, how are you able to do that? Because you have, I don't know if you have as many Twitter haters as I do, but sometimes it gets pretty anti-Chadian on, on lefty Twitter. Sometimes. Some, <laughs> like, are there any times when it doesn't? No, it's a pretty consistent feature of that discourse. I mean, I would say I, I, I don't want to numerically compare my haters to yours, but I will say that my haters, I think, are much more diverse. I mean, there's whole sub specialties of chate hatred in hatred. Chatred, yes. I mean, obviously, there's there's the right wing version and the left wing version, and then within the left, there's you know identity based, there's cl- there's economics based, um, there's all there's all kinds of like sub specialties, and some you know sometimes they'll be fighting with each other about what's the real reason to hate Jonathan Chate, which can be enjoyable. Um, no, but I mean, my main thing I do is I I just rarely read my Twitter notifications. I use Twitter to follow people who I follow in my feed, like you. Um, I use it to, to tweet out my own links, but like I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading people who are self-selecting me who like want to talk about me. I mean, sometimes I succumb to the temptation because I I love the hate. I, I'm sort of an addict to the hate, but because that's so unproductive, such an unproductive use of my time, I, I usually just lash myself to the mast and I don't have... Like I don't have the Twitter notifications popping up on my on my. I've got to go. Like I've got to say, all right, I'm going to take a break and see what the haters have to say. But I don't spend a lot of time doing that. Yeah, that's probably more healthy. Um, well, this has been a great chat. I believe when I was 24, I emailed you. I don't know if it was out of the blue or maybe we knew each other a little from a listserv. And I was uh, nobody whatsoever. And you agreed to get lunch with me in DC. And I was complaining about this or that. I was probably very upset about probably the waning days of the Bush administration. And I'll never forget, you explained that uh, just a few generations ago, we were all getting slaughtered in our Eastern European villages and hadn't things gotten much better since then. And I think about that a lot. Really? That's what I said? Something like that. You might not have said slaughtered, but you were like, we used to be fleeing the Cossacks or whatever. It was very, it was very Semitic and it was uh, sage council. Um. Thank you. And, uh, well, hopefully, um, we won't be returning. I feel like we were sort of on the verge of returning to that, you know, like, <laughs> like <laughs> there were, there were some days when I was kind of looking out the windows to see if there were going to be any Cossacks coming, but I feel like, yeah, I feel like we are broadly speaking, you know, headed in a, in a, in a positive direction. And, 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 and I think it's, you know, maybe, maybe that's a good answer to the concern that you raised before that I was really unable to, give any good answer to that, you know, look at the darkest days of McCarthyism. Yeah. yeah. Um, We're not, it went away. Whatever else. Yeah. Right. I mean, people reason, I think really does have a way of prevailing over the long run, even when it seems like it's, it's losing and has got no chance. Thank you, John Chait. I assume people can, um, can find you as always on nymag.com. Anything else you want to shout out while you're here? No, but, um, I, adore your show um i love your work um i'm 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 a fan of both and i'll i'll just and i'll be be continue continuing to read and listen thank you john you also you also gave my uh, book a very kind blurb so uh, i really appreciate that it makes a big difference oh great thanks well good luck with that too and and i'll keep listening to you and katie thank you so much john have a good night you too So yeah, uh, definitely check out John Chait's stuff if you're not 
familiar with it. He was a, a big influence on me uh, when I was younger, and he continues to be. That story about the lunch is actually absolutely true. You do not, you know, that's a really nice thing to do. Just get lunch with a young writer with with no name, just because he likes your work. So I'll always appreciate that he did that. Is that grooming? Yeah, John John Jay groomed me. <laughs> I think it is. He groomed me into neoliberalism. Yeah, it's interesting to listen to him um, because he is a, just like kind of a sensible. I don't know, like sort of sensible dude um and people really fucking hate him online he he tends to inspire a level of of uh of hatred that is not really in line with um with his personality or the things that he says or writes even even when i disagree with him um there are other people like that as well you might be one of them Uh, yeah it's interesting because i think for like maybe like Chapo Twitter and certain elements of, of weird Twitter, hating Chait is very important to their like tribal identity in the same way hating us is to some other communities like, like, uh, you know, Doyle, Doyle centered Twitter, but, uh, Chait does not deserve the hate. Jesse, can I tell you my favorite, um, John Chait moment on Twitter? Go for it. Okay. So there's a guy named Owen Higgins, who's a leftist writer. I've had run-ins oh, with him. Oh yeah. He, Familiar. Yeah, he's yep. a, I believe a graduate of Evergreen State University, which sort of tells you everything that you need to know. Um, he's incredibly annoying and he also is very bad with details. Um, and so in November of last year, uh, Owen Higgins wrote a, a piece about, um, about basically about Chait's wife, um, who does something with charter schools. And he got a bunch of details wrong in this piece, including like what she does for a living. Uh, he, he said that Chait like didn't disclose that his wife does something with charter schools, which is false. Um, he contacted New York Magazine's editors, uh, to complain about this, like, what he perceived as a conflict of interest. The magazine said there was no conflict of interest. They, he like doesn't understand the policy. But here's the best part. Owen Higgins Googled John Chait's wife, uh, apparently Google imaged her to put a photo of her in this in this article. And he <laughs> he found a book he put in a picture of the wrong woman. Oh, no. Someone else became Robin Chait. Or a different Robin Shade? Yeah, there, it was either a different Robin Shade or it was just like a random fucking woman. Um, but it was not his wife. So good work, Owen. Oh, man. Yeah. Shade doesn't deserve the hate at all. But uh, I was glad we talked to him. Uh, Katie, anything else we wanted to get to before we just do the normal contact housekeeping stuff? Well, last thing uh, for this episode – our, we're about to record a Patreon. Um, you mentioned it at the top of the show. I think this is going to be a fun one. It's about some drama in Reddit. It's also about some drama in uh, this sort of gender critical space, um, specifically with Graham Linehan, who is a formerly much beloved writer in the UK, um, screenwriter and uh, and like satirist in the UK, who has a, a terrible case of internet poisoning. Um, and I think it's going to be a good one. If people want to join us, it's at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. And for just $5 a month, you can get three, at least three episodes every month. I think four this month. We're going above and beyond for our patrons. Above and beyond. Yeah, that'll be good. Also, everyone stop being mean to me because Graham Linehan's followers also don't like me. So by the associative property of whatever, that means I'm good. Um, Please, please, please consider pre-ordering my book, The Quick Fix. It is out April 6th. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, We're going to talk about it a little more, but uh, it's a big deal for me. So if you are able to, please either pre-order it or you can help for free by requesting it to your library. In addition, we have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported, blocked reported podcast at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're back up to 4.7, I think, which is just incredibly important. Uh, 
Katie, what am I missing? Oh, oh. We I made an error last week. We talked about how it would be silly to do a hate crime, but then not acknowledge why you did the hate crime. And I said that would be like if Osama bin Laden or Al Qaeda didn't take credit for 9-11. Katie, you'll never guess who initially denied responsibility for 9-11. Hmm. The Jews? <laughs> we did, falsely, but so did Osama bin Laden. I was just completely wrong about that. And I've realized it's it's so much easier to make a uh, error which I would never do in writing on a podcast where you're just sort of sometimes uh, free associating. But yes, Osama bin Laden or, or Al-Qaeda did, I'll include a link to the show notes, initially denied responsibility. So you're saying he didn't do it. Yeah. I'm. <laughs> yes. If I'm understanding myself correctly, I am now a 9-11 truther. Oh, <laughs> this is exactly the, but, the turn that this podcast is no, looking for. Get, get this though. Osama survived. He was never killed. That uh, Suez Canal thing that just happened, that was him. Suez? Did you pronounce it Suez Canal? Suez. 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 This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, stop the chate hate. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you're going to put us on a list, make sure it's on a list of podcasts. Did you mean best podcasts or just podcasts? Just podcasts. Okay. All right.